everyone? <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hi. Right, so I'm assuming you guys are all at page 900. Yeah, okay, good. Right, let's get started. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who, who I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do? Do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Loving Father, please help me now to open your word to our hearts, and please would you open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's not the most cheery of passages, is it? Um, and in, the, in a series coming up in John's Gospel of very dark moments, this one here is, I think, one of the darkest. Um, there are lots of ways in which we hurt each other as human beings, um, but of all of them, and there are some pretty bad ones. I think betrayal is one of the worst. Betrayal must be one of the ones that leaves the nastiest taste in the mouth. As someone once said, that the really sad thing about betrayal is it never comes from your enemy. Um, and whether it was your friend in primary school who told the teacher it was you talking when it was actually them, or being very deeply wounded as an adult by trusted loved ones who turned on you, or anything in between. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been betrayed. We all know what it feels like. And so does our Savior, so does Jesus. Not just some aloof God out there. He was one of us. He walked this earth in our skin, so he knows what it's like. He, he experiences himself. And, and John's account of that in today's passage contains some insights that are very powerful and, and uh, reassuring and motivating for us as we seek to follow Jesus. So if you're sitting here right now this morning and secretly you're finding the Christian life a bit of a drag, or if you're sitting here right now and you're struggling with anxiety, because of situations that seem to be completely chaotic and destructive and out of control, we are in exactly the right passage for you this morning. Um, the first of just three insights I'm going to pull out of these verses is that the church is mixed. Here's what I mean by that. The church, by which I mean the visible church, those who seem from the outside to be part of God's true people, 
is mixed. Not all of them really are part of God's people. Some of them are fakers, they're deceptive, be it of others or even of themselves. Uh, let's jump into the text. And, and the context here, if you were here last week, is that Jesus has just been urging his disciples to follow his example in serving, humbly serving. And in verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Then the tone suddenly changes, verse 18, where we pick up from. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. It's a quotation from Psalm 41. Psalm 41 was written by David about when his son, Absalom, betrayed him. And that image of lifting your heel against someone, that's pretty vivid, isn't it? Um, That's not just about violence, although that's part of it. It's also about contempt. As one scholar puts it, to show the bottom of one's foot to someone in the Near East is a mark of contempt, as it is to this day. I remember driving past people in Iraq, taking their sandals off and waving their sandals at me. They weren't being friendly. They weren't saying, we're glad to see you. Um, and, but as well as contempt, this is also a picture of, of violence, sudden violence. Another commentator writes, it is associated with the kick of a horse, vicious and unexpected. And notice it's, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This traitor looked like a friend. This traitor had accepted Jesus' fellowship. Can't get any more precious intimate fellowship than sharing food with someone in the Near East. He'd accept Jesus' kindness. So, you know, it's something like, picture a group of really close friends. And and they're sunbathing. They're all lying together on the ground. They're clustered together together. And, and they're sharing food and drink with each other. There's banter flowing. They're just enjoying each other's company because they love each other. And then one of them quietly gets up, walks around the group, and suddenly, without warning, stamps on the head of one of the other people in the group. Church is mixed. Or, or look down to verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And the Greek word for troubled there, that's the same word used earlier in John's gospel to describe the water at the pool of Bethesda being churned up and disturbed. Jesus is churning. I wonder if you, you, you're churning about something at the moment or you have done in the past. Well, Jesus knows what that's like. He was literally churning here. Verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was churning and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I find the next verse very troubling. Verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. These are men who have lived and worked with each other at incredibly close quarters, literally for years, for about three years. They had no idea who it was. That's how well disguised Judas was. Like we see Judas coming a million miles away. At the mere mention of his name early on in the Gospels, before he's done anything wrong, internally we're going, booze. Like the name, Judas is an expression in our society, isn't it? So-and-so is a Judas. That's because, you know, we've been culturally conditioned. Judas equals bad, betrayer. Uh, you know, we've probably been learning that ever since Sunday school, if we went to Sunday school. Part of our folklore after three years of incredibly close proximity to this guy, the other 11, no idea. Church is mixed. And in fact, Judas being the disciples' treasurer, as we see later in the passage, verse 29, 
presumably means he was one of the disciples who's regarded as being more trustworthy, having more integrity. That's the guy you put in charge of your money. That's how well hidden Judas' treachery was. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and by the way, that's John the writer's way of referring to himself. That's like his social media handle. Hashtag, the, the, not hashtag, but the one who Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So good old Peter, ever the one, if in doubt, to open his mouth, um, gets John's attention because John is next to Jesus. And Peter's like, ask him, who is it? Now at formal dinners, like the Passover meal that these guys are having at this moment, people would typically recline in couches around a low table, heads facing into the table, raised up on their left elbow, eating with their right hand. And that means that John must have been directly to Jesus' right. We can almost picture some other seating plan because of how this works. And, and because all, they were leaning on their left and their heads were all facing into the table, just by leaning back a little bit, John's head is almost touching Jesus' chest now. Jesus' head is there. We'll come on to who I think was the other side of Jesus in a sec. I think we can maybe sort of work that out too from the narrative in a second. But by leaning back a little bit, John's head is almost on Jesus' chest. Some translations talk about him having his head in Jesus' bosom. And John can whisper to Jesus. I assume it was a whisper, verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, and again, presumably in a whisper, or a very low voice, so that not everyone heard, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now in these settings, if the host selected a nice morsel of food and sort of did some preparation to it, like dipped it in a sauce or broth or something, and passed it to one of the other guests, that would be a symbolic mark of special favor and kindness and honor to that other guest. Second half of verse 26. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, how do we think he could reach Judas to give him the piece of bread? On top of giving someone food, another mark of receiving honor and favor from the host was to be seated close to him. As was the case, I reckon, with Judas here, possibly, if Jesus can physically reach him to give him the morsel. So Jesus really is extending extra kindness and privilege and honor and love to Judas in these ways. The other disciples must have been watching Jesus do this, all apart from John, who knew what, that it was actually a sign. And they must have been thinking, wow, Judas is doing well spiritually. I thought he was really godly and he's in charge of the money. He's trustworthy. But look how Jesus is treating him. He must be on fire spiritually. Look how the master's you know, honoring him. Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. The church is mixed. And in 2,000 years, nothing's changed. Um, that, that is the case today. I could give you names. I'm not going to. It would, wouldn't be edifying. But I could give you names of high-profile so-called Christians who have fallen away in recent years, including authors of well-known books that some of us, certainly for me, have been blessed by. Um, and many of us probably could come up with names right now of people who seem to be doing well in the Christian faith once, but who now don't seem to be anywhere spiritually. You know, I think of a, a Christian friend when we were students together and um, a, a Christian who discipled me when I was at school, and a Christian in one of my small groups at one of my previous churches. 
the church is mixed. And in these verses, there's a very specific point to us being presented with that truth, which is, for us, not to be unsettled when we see this happening around us, when we see people falling away. So when someone apparently falls away, we don't need to throw up our hands and start worrying and stressing about whether or not God is still really in control, whether his plan is being derailed, how, how secure his election is of someone if he's chosen them. Don't need to be anxious about that. Uh, it's tragic. It's really tragic. We'll come to that in a second. But we mustn't let it unsettle us. Because when someone seems to fall away, logically, there must be one of two alternatives happening. Either... They never were a true believer in the first place. And, and this same writer makes exactly that point repeatedly in one of his letters at the very end of the New Testament. So either they never were a true believer in the first place, or deep down, despite seeming to fall away, what they've actually done is seriously backslidden, and deep down they are still a believer. One of the two. Because look again at verse 17. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knows, who's he, knows who he chooses. He doesn't make mistakes. He's sovereign. We're reading on in verse 18. Jesus says, the scripture will be fulfilled. And then he quotes you know, that, that Psalm 41, written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened, before it plays out literally within seconds of him using it as a prophecy. So when an apparent believer falls away, of course Jesus knew that would happen. God the Son knew it would happen before the foundation of the world. Nothing can happen outside of God's perfect plan. But the clearest example in these verses of Jesus' desire for us not to be unsettled by the fact that the church is mixed is verse 19. He says, I'm telling you now before it takes place that, so why? Why is he telling the disciple John that Judas is going to fall away? I'm telling you now before it takes place that, here's my reason, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Greek word for I am he, literally, You'll probably guess the answer if you know John's gospel. Ego Amy. I am. God's personal name. Hebrew, Yahweh. He's saying, I'm telling you now, so that when this does take place, when you do see the churches mixed, when Judas and others throughout the rest of history will fall away, you won't lose confidence in me. You won't lose confidence about my true identity, that I am God in skin. And in verse 20, his point's very similar. He's saying they don't need to, need to lose confidence in salvation being available through him. Verse 20, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, God the Father. So he's saying don't be unsettled. Don't worry that your future mission work in pointing people to me will be pointless. You really will be pointing them towards a saving relationship with God the Father. So don't be unsettled about the guy who's about to betray me. The plan is not off the rails. This didn't blindside me. And so if some high-profile Christian leader used in your life falls away, or some close Christian friend that you trusted falls away, maybe you've had your world rocked by that in the past. I remember one of my previous churches, a couple had their marriage prep done and then got married by an older, incredibly godly couple, and the wife then went off the rails, totally off the rails. And they were really shaken and rocked by this, had to reevaluate their own faith. The point of this is that when that kind of thing happens, of course it's sad, it's horrific, and we will come onto that in a second. It doesn't change anything for us. In that sense, it doesn't matter. 
we just calmly keep going, trusting nothing can ever blindside our master. So one thing I love to do at home is uh, wrestle with my boys. And my wife's not crazed about it because I end up having to peel them off the ceiling, or, or she does. She's very patient. Um, they're getting pretty good, actually. And some evenings when I get in from work, Teddy comes up to me and says, Daddy, can we have a game of get the man down? That's what he calls it, get the man down. And before long, our sitting room looks like it's the scene of some knockdown, drag-out, royal rumble. Um, you know, cushions everywhere. Well, being a dad who doesn't completely want to crush his son's spirits, um, I normally let them win. That's my story, anyway. So I'm sticking to it. But as I'm lying there on the sofa, being sort of choked out and tapping out frantically, um, guess what my nine-year-old doesn't feel? My nine-year-old doesn't feel panic that his dad isn't a real man who can protect him, but instead is some pathetic weakling who gets beaten up by four-year-olds. That's not what he's thinking. The reason he doesn't think that is that before the wrestle started, I told him, Nate, today, this time, we're going to let Teddy win this one. Okay, we're going to let Teddy win. It happens. He's not unsettled. He knows it was part of the plan. Let's not be unsettled. And yet... At the same time, second insight in these verses that has to go alongside that first point, the warning is real. Um, Just because Jesus knew in advance that Judas would betray him, just because it was all part of God's wider master plan from the very beginning, doesn't mean it's still not a terrible warning for us. And we've already gone through the relevant verses. I, I won't go over them again. But just now listen to what one commentator says about this. The most disturbing element in this passage is the warning represented in the figure of Judas. Balancing the stress on the crucial importance of faith in the gospel, in this gospel, is the seriousness of unbelief, the refusal of faith. Hell is no mere theoretical possibility. It is an awesome and fearful reality. To refuse the light means to choose the darkness where no light will ever shine again. And, of course, Judas' warning to us carries a particular edge to it. Because even had communion with Jesus himself, even had his feet washed by Jesus, had one-to-ones for three years, for three years from Jesus, and he went to hell. Because ultimately it doesn't come down to evidence. Any truly intellectually honest person does not have to study biblical Christianity for long to realize that of course Jesus is the Son of God. Of course he died for our sins. Ultimately admitting that doesn't come down so much to evidence as to the human heart. Do I want to believe Can I bring myself to hand over my life to its rightful owner? Those who don't believe, don't believe because they don't want to, ultimately, deep down. Well, I wonder if you've got a favorite book. You know, maybe we could ask Dustin to make that question of the week one day. Um, My all-time favorite book definitely has to be Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, written in 1678. It's quite long. I've read it probably maybe six times. It's completely inspiring. It describes the journey of faith of a man called Christian. But it turns lots of the spiritual realities that you and I face 
in our Christian lives into literal physical realities, which makes it the most gripping fantasy adventure set in the 17th century. And it's very realistic. It's written by a guy who saw combat himself in the English Civil War. He knew about real adventures, not a Walter Mitty. But as well as being just exciting and gripping, and it's also very moving. Because as you read of his physical adventures, you realize that actually as a Christian, you've been through them yourself, spiritually. And at the very end, when Christian's long saga of, of narrow escapes and, and incredible adventures is at an end, and he's safely, eventually through the doors of the celestial city, through the great gates of heaven, the writer, the narrator, suddenly notices another man who he hadn't spotted before coming around the corner. And this man has been provided with a sneaky shortcut to heaven by another man called vain hope, which is 17th century language for false hope. And this man goes up to the gates of heaven, which are like the gates of a gigantic sort of castle, city, and he starts to bang on them to be let in. And here's what the narrator writes. He was asked by the men that looked over the top of the gate, where are you from? What do you want? He answered, I ate and drank in the presence of the king. He taught in my street. Then they asked him for his certificate. And that stands for the, the proof of his identity, the proof that Jesus has really called him. That they might go in and show it to the king. So he fumbled in his breast pocket for one and found none. Then they said, have you none? But the man answered, never a word. So they told the king, but he would not come down to see him, but commanded two shining ones, angels, to go out and take the man and bind him hand and foot and have him away. Then they took him and carried him through the air to the door that I saw in the side of the hill and put him in there. Then I saw there was a way to hell, even at the gate of heaven. And I awoke, and behold, it was a dream. The whole thing was a dream. But the spiritual realities in the story are not a dream. They're real. There really is a way to hell at the very gate of heaven. And that was the case for Judas. You couldn't have found anyone who, who, who looked more like an impressive elite inner circle Jesus follower than Judas. And so what a warning for us. And specifically, it's a warning not to be presumptuous. In other words, not to arrogantly assume that just because I do things really well on the outside... And, and I tick the right boxes, I look good to the right people, I've got years of one-to-ones with an amazing spiritual mentor, then my salvation is guaranteed. Judas had three years of one-to-ones with Jesus Christ himself. Because salvation depends on none of that. That's all just optics. It depends on my personal relationship with Jesus. In other words, it depends on what's going on inside my heart. So let's not be presumptuous. However well we might look on the outside like we're doing spiritually, let's heed this warning. And, and without being morbidly introspective, which is what I think some of the Puritans arguably did fall into at times, like Bunyan, maybe that's harsh, without being morbidly introspective, by the way, let's be in the habit of taking a long, careful look at our hearts sometimes. I, I may be leading this team and running this growth group. I may even be a pastor, but, but you know, Judas was looking great too. What's going on in my heart? Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do I have genuine faith in him to pay for my sins and genuine repentance daily? In the words of Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, pursue a relationship with Jesus with humility and urgency. 
which leads to the final picture here, which is that the Lord is sovereign. Um, The church is mixed. Don't be unsettled. The warning's real. Don't be presumptuous. But the Lord is sovereign. In other words, he's in control. He's perfectly powerful and wise. Got everything covered. And we've seen this earlier already with Jesus in these verses, reminding his disciples he knows who he chooses, verse 18. Uh, Prophesying about what's about to happen by quoting a centuries-old prophecy, Psalm 41, verse 18. Uh, By telling his disciples in advance before it happens, verse 19. By referencing God's personal name for himself, Yahweh, I am. End of verse 19. But on top of all of that, John has this this beautiful, very sort of sophisticated sub-theme woven into the passage. And it's it's quite hard to spot. But once you see it, it's very powerful to drive this point home. So verse 26. What does Jesus do with the dipped bread to the apparent friend? He hands it over. Just remember that language. He hands over the dipped bread to the friend who's about to betray him. Doesn't look like he's in control. Um, in, in verse 2 and, and in verse 21, Judas is going to hand over Jesus to the authorities. Doesn't look like Jesus is in control. But then we remember verse 3, in which God the Father has handed over everything into Jesus' hands. You look a little bit beneath the surface, Jesus is in control. See that little motive showing that, to hand over. And in fact, this is ironic, he's so in control that when Judas does leave to betray him, it is actually at Jesus' command. I wonder if you noticed that. Jesus is orchestrating everything here. He's pulling all the strings. He looks like the victim. He's actually the the guy in control. I I was going to say puppet master, but that's a bad analogy. Judas had personal responsibility, freedom for what he was doing. But nonetheless, Jesus is in total control, even to the extent of commanding Judas to then go and betray him. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Here's the take home for us from this final point. Don't be anxious. I'm going to end on a high, because look at the final four words of verse 30. I won't say them. I want us all to see them for ourselves. They're very symbolic. They look like just a, a, a random little temporal marker. They're very symbolic. Last four words of verse 30. And in the Bible as a whole, especially John's Gospel, happens a few times in John's Gospel, the night stands for things like uncertainty and chaos and ignorance and evil. And so listen to how one scholar puts it. The encouragement is clear. If Jesus in his purpose used the dark forces of chaos convulsing in the cauldron, which was Jerusalem at the Passover feast time, he can master and harness the darkness that daily threatens our personal lives. In handing all over to him, we need not exclude the darkness in our past or that which threatens us in the present and future. He is still Lord of the night who can make the darkness the vehicle of his praise. As a a Bible character back in Genesis 50 very famously says in verse 20 of Genesis 50 to people who tried to murder him but whose actions ended up saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of other people, you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. And the Lord can do that because he's sovereign. 
So no matter what's going on, what, no matter what the night might look like in your life right now, we don't need to be anxious. The Lord's sovereign. So let me finish with this. On Monday the 8th of uh, July, 1997, there was a tragedy in Heath High School in Kentucky in the U.S. And a small group of students had just finished a, a, their own informal prayer meeting in the hallway. And they were about to head off to classes when a boy called Michael, who the prayer meeting leader had befriended earlier in the year, opened fire on them with a 22 caliber automatic. Um, the leader, a boy called Ben, called out, Mike, what are you doing? And walked towards him. After firing 10 rounds, Mike dropped his weapon. Ben walked up to him, put his arm around him, and urged him to calm down. Three students were killed. Five were wounded. One of those five was paralyzed. Now, in the aftermath of that shooting, local pastors were called in to help with counseling uh, the, the students in the school. And according to one pastor, quote, the thing the kids are asking most is why. And all I can tell them is that what Satan means for evil, God can bring good out of it. That's already happening. And one journalist reported that the prayer meeting, which normally had about 25 kids, had more than 250 the following morning. Um, the pastors who compared notes in the aftermath found that they had all been leading multiple kids to Christ. Uh, the, the kid who'd been paralyzed was 15-year-old Melissa Jenkins. She was one of the first, message, uh, first victims to send a message to the shooter. Her message was, tell Michael I forgive him. And Ben, the student leader, predicted that revival would result from the shooting. Now, this isn't to say that we can always have a pat answer as to why evil things happen. And evil things are evil. We're not trying to say they're not. We, it would be arrogant and insensitive to say, oh, well, don't worry, because here's all the good things that could come from that. And so just, you know. But nonetheless, whether it's the eternal salvation of hundreds being activated, like in Heath High School, and, and, and some believers being, you know, promoted to glory early, uh, and, and maybe good things coming out of the grief of those they left behind. Or whether it's the eternal salvation of countless millions being won, as with Jesus' betrayal. Or, and whether it's other good things, or maybe other good things we could never possibly know about, or, or imagine, or work out, or experience at the time. The Lord always brings good out of evil. Evil always unwittingly ends up fulfilling God's prior plan. Because he's sovereign. And so, like I say, I wonder if there's any night in your life right now. Um, well, if so, don't need to be anxious. doesn't mean it won't hurt, but at least you can have a measure of deep-seated peace because the Lord is sovereign. Let's have some quiet to reflect before I close in prayer. Father God, thank you for this reminder and, and your honesty that the church is mixed. Thank you for giving us realistic expectations. 
Lord, you alone know why you do things the way you do them. And you're a little bit wiser than us. You have a little more data. You have things like eternality. And we're so finite. So we want to be humble and trust that the way you do things is, is the best way to do them. But Lord, help us not to be unsettled when we encounter this, this sometimes frightening truth that the church is mixed. Father God, thank you for this loving warning as well. We look at Judas' example, and it's scary. And so we pray that we would not be presumptuous. Would that be a spur for us to just be obedient to verses like Philippians 2.12 and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you who works in us. You're sovereign. But Lord, please would that not be a license for us just to harden our hearts and, and have our faith boiled down merely to externals. Help us to be examining our hearts and pursuing a personal relationship with Jesus with urgency and humility. And Lord, thank you for this picture as well, that even in the midst of this betrayal and this darkness and this sadness, and even while Jesus is literally churning, he is sovereign, he is Lord. And therefore, help us not to be anxious, Lord. If, if, if he was Lord over that night that was happening in the second half of John 13, and that's the darkest night there ever could have been, led to the, the torture to death of your precious son. How much more must Jesus be Lord over whatever night that we might be experiencing? So therefore, do deliver us from anxiety, Lord. Comfort us in any pain. But Lord, give us confidence and peace that you bring good out of evil. And we pray you do these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.